0: Welcome to the SoCal Hymns podcast series. This is Sarah Richardson, and today we are featuring a conversation with Dr. Ogachiga Olaze. Oge is a graduate of the University of Minnesota's Infectious Disease Fellowship Program. Prior to this, he completed internship and residency at the Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he got his introduction to digital health, working in EPIC planning and implementations. Dr. Alaze is the CEO of Southwest Viral Med, a nonprofit organization in El Paso, Texas, that organizes and manages the treatment of persons living with HIV and HCV. SWVM has been responsible for the care of 1,000 clients living with chronic viral infections since its inception in 2015. Based on their excellence of care, the South Central AIDS Education and Training Center chose them to provide regional HIV and HCV training. Dr. Laze is currently the Chief Health Informatics Officer at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, Texas. As CHIO, Dr. Laze is responsible for providing leadership for the integration of technology into healthcare to achieve the quadruple aim. He also leads the collaborative process of enterprise stakeholders to develop the health IT vision for El Paso as it seeks to grow into a data-driven organization focused on high-quality, engaged patient care. Dr. Lazi is engaged in multiple HIV clinical trials, as well as providing a teaching environment for medical students, medical residents, and pharmacy students and pharmacy residents. He gave a TEDx El Paso talk titled The Digital Immigrant in 2016, and in the same year was awarded Best Doctor in the City by the El Paso City Magazine. In 2017, the El Paso Pharmacy Association gave his clinic the award for innovative practice. Okay, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for agreeing to be one of our guests.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. So you did a TEDx session a couple years back titled The Digital Immigrant and shared how technology becomes a key differentiator in how patients engage with their healthcare. Tell us more about what you have witnessed in the industry since that talk where you mentioned the future is not what it used to be.
1: Yeah, so I think first of all, thank you for taking the time and everything. And I often tell people that ask me about that TED Talk that it' would probably be the scariest public speaking moment of my career, but it was really enjoyable. Um, got a lot of good comments about it, so thank you. One of the things specifically, and when I look at my sort of perspective or lens on digital health or healthcare technology and how it affects both patients and clinicians, is being in El Paso, Texas, probably the fifth largest city in Texas, sitting on the border, sort of that epicenter of a lot of the political dynamics that we have in the country, I'll city that's a little bit poorer than most, a high volume of Medicaid, a high volume of patients without um, a clear payer, right? So it's not government, it's not commercial, they may or may not have an employer that's driving it. And so what I've seen is that we're looking at technology, not just to bridge that gap, but create a pathway for those patients and their family members to engage in healthcare care on what I kind of call their own terms. So whether you're in a small city or a big city, the barriers to care around traveling or taking a bus or whether it's Uber Health or circulation, getting to a clinic, waiting in line, the whole waiting room process, and then seeing your provider for maybe three to five minutes if you're lucky, and then having a host of paperwork to fill out on the back end, and then not even knowing whether that information is gonna travel anywhere. I think those are all challenges that if you aren't sick or have had a family member that's sick, it's really hard to grasp. And so a lot of times I challenge our leaders internally and externally to say, have you been sick recently and do you go to your organization if you're sick? When you have gone to your organization, tell me what you felt. Tell me the experience. And if their experience as technology leaders isn't excellent or isn't something that they would recommend to other people, then I tell them that you probably have some ways to go, right? we got to do better. I think specifically when I was talking about the digital immigrant, it was around There's a host of people in our society that, in a sense, are acting like immigrants coming to this country. They're new to technology. They haven't engaged in technology. Their kids and grandkids do, but maybe they have a smartphone that a son, daughter, nephew, family member has bought them, and all they really use it for is they look at a few pictures. If they're a certain age, they look at Facebook, and they make phone calls right? And that's one piece of it, but that's very different than the millennials and the generation below them who are immersed, right? They're natives in that technology. And so if you look at the data around how do millennials, um, and I think Gen Zers engage in healthcare, they really don't want a primary care doctor. They don't want to have a long-term relationship with a physician, but the digital immigrant does. And we have to find ways to bridge that gap for them. And whether it's the basic things like sending text reminders or phone call reminders before an appointment or letting them look at their labs. And I know there's a lot of controversy about whether a patient can actually assimilate what that lab is to them. Maybe they have a family member that can, right? And I think there's a lot of low touch but technological solutions that can help people engage. Some of that care, and so we've been really trying to figure out how can we do that on a I won't call it low cost, but budget neutral standpoint. How can we do that and ensure, especially in El Paso and Southwest United States, it's bilingual. It's not acceptable to only have it in English. It has to be in Spanish as well for both monolingual and bilingual patients. And so that's a lot of the things that we're looking at to how do we differentiate our care from the competitors in the market, be them be the large healthcare groups like Tenet or HCA or the smaller physician groups that are three to five docs.
0: You, know, you mentioned you live in El Paso, but you're originally from Nigeria and you touched in your Ted talk about the fact that you went 14 years without really the utilization of the newer technologies. And today you're a pioneer in the clinician space of advancing technology When you think about technology as a differentiator for patients who face access to care, health literacy, and really the cultural integration, How are you getting in front of that? And what are you seeing, maybe specific to your area of the country in being able to erase some of those barriers?
1: Yeah, I think some of the biggest barriers are around language. And so it's interesting to me, but within our EMR, for example, for the longest time, it was only in English. And we use G-centricity, by the way. But for the longest time, it was only in English. And so those of us who are not comfortable doing English to Spanish translations for patient education education and information would use Google Translate, right? And all of a sudden now, most of the major EMR companies are embedding bilingual patient education inside of it. so I think that's very important. We're still having clients come in, whether it's um, the Microsoft tool, I can't remember the name of, or the Google Translate, they're still continuing to use that to at least get ahead of that um, integration and translation issue. I think that one of the things that happens, however, is that if you look at the drivers of digital health, healthcare technology, They're historically coastal, right? So they're the Silicon Valley, they're the New York. And it's not as if they don't have populations that are... Spanish monolingual or bilingual, but because they're focused on how they're comfortable, they're not making de facto applications and integrations that are multicultural and bilingual. And so one of the things that has been kind of fun for us that when we do meet these vendors, one of the first questions off the bat is, hey, are you bilingual? Do you have Spanish? And I tell you that seven to eight out of 10 don't. And they're always like, oh, well, that's phase two. And so I'm trying to push them back and say, why isn't that phase one? Right when our population over the next decade plus is going to be almost forty to fifty percent Spanish speaking, kind of doesn't make sense if you're really planning to be an organization or a healthcare vendor that has longevity in the market. That you're not creating bilingual health literacy and culture and uh, cultural integration. I think going back to the piece about being Nigeria, born in Nigeria, grew up in Minnesota. When I moved to El Paso about 10 years ago with my family, it was remarkable to me the similarities around family and culture between Nigeria and Hispanic culture. Very family-centered, very family-driven. When I was at Hennepin County Medical Center and the University of Minnesota in Minnesota, we would have a client visit and they would come in with just the patient, right? And I did a lot of HIV care then. In El Paso, if there's not a minimum of three to four People in the room, I can already tell that they're going to have problems long term. They're going to have problems with follow up. They're going to have problems with coming to terms and to grips with their HIV diagnosis and management. And so my front desk has actually started um, telling me up front or putting in a field in the um, electronic medical record, which is how many patients, how many persons that they come with up front, because that's now a predictor of how well will they integrate into the system and how much social support they get. And so those are some of the things that, I mean, you wouldn't, not in a textbook, you may not think about, but again, I think partially being from Nigeria, living in El Paso, I see some of those cultural similarities and some of the things that technology has to do to bridge those gaps.
0: Well, I love that you mentioned that something needs to be in Spanish. So I live in Los Angeles, and we are predominantly of Tino mm-hmm. community as well. More people here speak Spanish than English. And what's interesting is that we recently had an implementation with a vendor where we it was delayed by several months because <laughs> it was getting the translation of Spanish correctly into you know an automated voice. And I thought it shouldn't be this hard to do Spanish right, in, right. in California, especially. And we're and this is a company based you know out of Florida. And I'm like, you have a a large Hispanic or at yeah. least a large Spanish-speaking Miami community. Miami for
1: Lauderdale, Tampa, yep. everything, yeah.
0: And uh, so it was an interesting journey. The same thing happened to us recently. Um You are currently at Texas Tech, and you're not alone in the journey to meaningfully connect with patients in the use of telemedicine. And you mentioned the advent of having, you know, three to four or five family members in on that visit. So five years ago would have been a differentiator if you had virtual care service offering, but now it's an expectation in the patient community. How are you working through common hurdles such as the workflow and the perceived loss of human touch, especially in a community that is highly family-oriented?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think I'll break it into a couple of pieces, and I'll take the back end first. From the perceived loss of human touch, I actually truly believe, at least in this community, that that's the biggest challenge we have, that the clients and patients, when they come in, they have an expectation with their family members around them um, that they're going to see a clinician, that a nurse practitioner, a PA, or a physician. And so... From a technology standpoint, it has been challenging um, both internally and to partners in the community who are doing active telemedicine because they've had clients say, Hey, I mean, this is great, it's easy, but I really want to talk to you, right? How are you going to know what's wrong with me if I can't see you face to face? And so that's going to be a challenge. And that's not going to be a challenge that challenge that is overcome in a day, month, or year, it'll take a while. I think that some of those generational shifts that we see from baby boomers kind of no longer being the lead generation to millennials taking that over, it's the same things we see locally. And so that's the pitch that we I've actually made to our leadership, which is in as much as we have a large Medicare population. Our Medicaid population is on average below 35. And so they need a different channel. They need a different way of communication to them, right? And so we probably aren't going to be able to have one singular platform that is all comers and does everything for everybody. It's going to have to be multi-channel. It's going to be, have to be differentiated. And so when you talk about it being a differentiator five years ago, What we're now seeing today is that we're unfortunately kind of behind the eight ball, right? We've had a lot of conversation about, oh, we should do this. We shouldn't do this. And we actually luckily recently got about a half a million dollars from the USDA with their rural utility services telemedicine grant to partner with seven to eight rural communities. And that's going to be sort of our pilot. And then we'll scale it from there. Super excited about it. But the reality is it's no longer a differentiator, as you mentioned. It's now something that we're probably going to have to do to compete because there's a host of primary and private docs in our community. And we have a large um, group of primary care docs and private docs that are not aligned to either the university, tenant, or HCA. In fact, I think we estimate that 50 to 60% of ambulatory care in El Paso is given by a private group that has less than four doctors. So you talk about Tower of Babel in terms of integration and healthcare information. Um, but all those groups, not all of them, but a lot of them are really looking at telemedicine as a way to do post-hospital discharge and post delivery discharge follow-ups, right? So they don't have to bring the patient in, it's a quick visit, they can charge cash. A lot of the concierge groups that have sprung up over the last two years are now using telemedicine. And we're actually beginning to see that erosion of margin on the edge, right? So a lot of times, you know, when technology or change comes in, it doesn't punch an organization in the gut and take 30% off the top, right? It's that 1% or 2%, or hey, on the west side of town, there's a group that's doing it really well, maybe in the center downtown, not so much, than on the east side. But as you multiply that or that becomes cumulative over the years, all of a sudden you wake up after five or 10 years and like, wow, we just lost 10% market share because we don't have a way to capture clients that want to engage with us differently. And so that's the challenge that we're focused on. I think also being an academic health center and um, Aaron Murray at uh, the Dell School would probably mirror this is there's some unique challenges when you're providing health care but also providing health care education to both medical students pharmacy students we have a dental school that just got approved in the legislative session that concluded recently right and so we have to find a way to ensure that our curriculum is teaching the next generation of health care providers and leaders Around what should be the standard of care. And I truly believe we have a digital health rotation where both medical students, um, pharmacy students come through our department and we sort of show them some of the things that are going on in the industry. I talk to them not just looking about today, but look five years from now when you're done with medical school, when you're a resident, when you're starting your own practice or joining a group. What's your expectation? How do you think things should be? And it's been really remarkable, some of the ideas that these students have come up with. um, And it's been great. It's been really inspiring.
0: No, I can only imagine. And you think about all of the different regulatory pieces that come in. So when you layer in Disrip, the Delivery System Reform Incentive Payment and Medicaid programs that are a part of a broader waiver of programs and provide states with significant funding that can be used to support hospitals and other providers and changing how they provide Medicaid to beneficiaries, how difficult has it been to focus on the clinical and population improvements that have been the foundation of these programs?
1: Yeah, I think for us... We've been lucky, we have a really skilled group internally who jumped on DISTRIP immediately. Um, we've actually been lucky and made a lot of money from it. I think where the sort of schism has been is we've managed DISTRIP as a sort of separate group, right? Is that outlier offshoot. And they've come in and grabbed data, changed some things in terms of practice improvement, and then presented it back to HHSC, Health and Human Services Commission in Texas. I think one of the things, and I've been kind of lucky that in the last, Year and a half, I'm actually the chair of the eHealth Advisory Commission to the commissioner of HHSC and Distrip. Is one of the things we've talked about is as the Medicaid group, right, locally starts to look at how they can do things differently and drive policy, process, and payment. We've been able to say, you know what, initially we we're just looking at this as a money making. Process, right? It's kind of like meaningful use, right? We did it because there's a lot of money out there and it didn't make sense organizationally not to chase it. But now we're beginning to drive and say, okay, if we change or if we measure how we're doing diabetes care and we have to improve it 2% year over year. How do we make that an organizational process so that it's built into the EMR in terms of clinical decision support and pop-ups that we're now having a unified and standardized way that we call patients that are diabetic or have heart disease or post-discharge, right? We're changing our phone system so it's more centralized and unified and there's cross training. And none of those things like come to mind immediately as a, oh yeah, this is healthcare. But if we don't do these things, We're not going to be able to give that care to the patients that they deserve. And we're not going to be a good partner to our hospital partners. Because, I mean, in Texas, it's a little bit different than in California. Majority of the academic health centers do not own their own hospital. Right. And so there's all these soft alignments, usually with the county hospital for um, in Houston, for example, with Memorial Hermann. And so we have to figure out how can we be a value add to our hospital partners, but then also drive the excellence of care that we're striving through to, rather. And so Gisrip has really been a learning experience for us to understand not only what we're doing, how to measure it, how to visualize it. We're using a data warehouse and some Tableau Tools as well, and then how to go improve things um, over time and make it operational. And so I think that initially, DISRIP was not a population health thing. It was more very clinical, um, one-off focused. But as it's grown, and I truly do hope that Texas um, continues the program and sort of um, integrates some of those best practices into Medicaid going forward and manage Medicare and Medicaid, I think that that foundational district will hopefully spark some improvements over the years. We're already seeing them internally.
0: Well, you touched on the expansion of really understanding social determinants of health care of the chronic disease management of managing the multiple morbidities that patients present into your organization, and EMR optimization isn't going away. In fact, as our EMRs continue to be data aggregators, driving large amounts of analytics in the march to utilize natural language processing, AI, and some of our advanced predictive modeling, the elegance of the design is more important than ever. As a physician, a professor, and a patient, how do you orchestrate this space?
1: Ooh, that's the hard part. I mean, truly, it's one of those things, and that's a great question, in that you think, so your job as a CMIO or CHIO, whatever the nom de jour is, is essentially that definition, right? How do you orchestrate the space? I think one of the things across the industry, and for us as well, is to coin a term, our EMRs suck. And it's, it's sort of pejorative, but until our EMRs are more UI and UX focused, until they work the way we expect our PCs, Macs, tablets, iPhones, and Androids to work, it really becomes difficult. Now, there are some vendors out there that are doing some great things or some cool things. And you mentioned some of the natural language processing and the AI, some of the predictive modeling. Even before we get to the data aggregation and the data warehouse or the data lake or whatever term an organization is focused on, I always tell vendors that are creating tools built within an EMR, why is it? so difficult for you to surface for me what Google surfaces for me when I do a Google search or what Facebook is surfacing when they're capturing all the data that those third-party apps are selling to them, right? It, it, it becomes ridiculous when as an ID doctor, the system knows what I do. And the system knows that every time I see an HIV patient, or 80% of the time, let's use Pareto. I'm going to do a certain bundle of things. So why force me to create my own smart text, right? Why force me to create my own bundle? Just surface it. You have the data. You have the predictive modeling, right? And so that way, the visit becomes more streamlined. I think it is ironic. Um, and again, not to make this political, but many of us in the industry probably would not have guessed that this particular administration and the things that CMS um, and ONC are doing have pushed and forced the industry to sort of focus on being patient-centered, data sharing, um, more agnostic, more than a lot of administrations prior to it and i think that's really a good thing now is it difficult yes but nothing good and no change ever came without some pain And so, again, I think that EMR vendors have to find a way to make the tools that we use a lot easier to use. And I acknowledge that whether it's the Epic, Cerner's, um, whomever is out there, right, they'll say, well, to do that takes a large rebuild and we can only do this a piece at a time. And that's granted. But when they've made billions of dollars on the backs of clinicians and patient care, I almost think that they have a business responsibility to make the clinician burden as little as possible. We're talking about physician burnout and all the things that drive that. And the fact that an ER doctor is going to click the ER 1,500 to to 2,000 times a shift, that's crazy. That just makes absolutely no sense. There has to be a better way to do that. And whether it's with speech recognition, natural language processing, predictive modeling. And then when you get that part right and you're aggregating the data into your lake or warehouse properly, then you can get to that population health piece, right? And so sometimes I see a lot of organizations, they jump on the population health piece and probably they have to, right? Because they're in a contract that's managed care or at risk or an ACO or a narrow network. They have to do that for those purposes, but they forget about the EMR optimization, right? So one of the things for us is that we've been um, a proud member of class for a while. We're involved in the class collaborative that looks at how do you train residents? How do you train clinicians to use the EMR better? And so I think some of the Those things have to be key um, foundational efforts to improve the EMR over time.
0: At HIMSS last year, they mentioned that interoperability is not a technology problem. It's a people problem. So when I hear you talk about the ability for the EMR to pivot to where the physician really becomes the consumer within that product, Mm
1: -hmm. how much
0: pressure do you see individuals like yourself, the partnership with Class? The understanding of, of coming to some of these forums and saying, look, you have, you built this system based on regulatory requirements, coding, and billing. I now need you to build it on my workflow and how I think because I'm the one who's really going to be the one, you, the I being you as the physician. I'm the one who's going to drive the change. I'm the one who's going to help us create uh, the quadruple aim. And by the way, I'm part of that aim. Where yep. do you really see the pressures that you and your colleagues and organizations like class are able to put the pressure on these? vendors to truly deliver something without a complete rebuild as an excuse?
1: Yeah, I think that's difficult, right? The whole rebuild as an excuse weighs heavily, not just from a vendor standpoint, but our EMR systems and big organizations have cost a quarter, half, a billion dollars to implement. And I'm not Pollyanna-ish enough to not realize that if you put half a billion dollars into something... Unless you absolutely cannot get a bill out the door, it's unlikely an organization is going to change. And so I think, unfortunately, a lot of that impetus isn't going to come from the organization because the CIO is now wedded to that half a billion dollar investment. The CEO is wedded. Whoever the clinical leadership that signed off on it is also wedded, right? And so I really do think that organizations like Hims and CLASS have to continue to shine lights on the problems with the physician experience within an EMR because part of it and people don't people often underplay this is that the physician experience will drive the patient experience. If you're a physician and you're inside your clinic or in the hospital and you hate engaging with your EMR, there's so many downstream effects. You're gonna probably not like engaging with the patient because you gotta do an extra note and you gotta do an extra order. You're not gonna put in the notes on time, which delays the bill out the door. You're not gonna respond when the patient's asking for his prescription or asking about being sick or on the online portal. You probably don't wanna do telemed because again, it's another thing that you gotta type in, and create carpal tunnel. Uh, And so a lot of times, I think the industry or the vendors specifically downplay it, right? And they say, well, you bought it. I mean, we're doing what we're told. I think it's a cop-out. I think that in in, um, fairness to the vendors, I think they're getting a lot better at it. I think they're realizing as they've gone down this road that, yes, they were mandated to do X, But X doesn't cut it anymore. And they have to pivot through iterative steps to get to Y. Some are going faster than the others. In a perfect world, really, what we would love, and I'll give the example not that they should do it per se, but in the perfect world, we need an Apple of the EMR to come in with their first iPod or to come in with the first iPhone that maybe people underplayed or didn't think was a great deal, but as they iterated it and got it better every year, now it's kind of the standard, right? And then Android had to keep up. And I think that's really, unfortunately, what hasn't happened in the EMR industry, right? The titans there created what they created to go sell us stuff and they haven't really tailored it to say, hey, we understand that we need to do better and we're gonna do better. And part of it too, I think, in some of those upgrades, it just costs so much money, right? How do you spend another extra 50 or 20 million dollars if you're a massive 20 hospital, 50 clinic um, group that has over 2,000 doctors? I mean, you have to weigh it. How much are we going to make to make our doctors happy?
0: You touched on the exact exact next question for me, and I always say it's the exciting topic of budgeting, but the cost of EMRs, <laughs> the cost of the technology, is, that doesn't go away. And it's always this, yeah. you know, this trade-off or this cost-benefit analysis that we're up against every single year, and as most of us are headed into budget season. Where yep. have you realized success in leading and managing organizational and cultural change with limited resources and funds, all under the scrutiny of an academic medical setting?
1: Yeah, I think the hard part is the academic medical setting. It's a lot more bureaucracy than I ever imagined. And it's not as if I wasn't in a bureaucracy as a resident or a fellow. But when you come into an organization and you become a leader of sorts, it's a lot different. The pressures are different. You get to see under the covers. And so the finances become very glaring. And the challenges and pressure of finance and budgeting become very glaring. In saying all of that, I think that organizations that sort of missed the opportunity of meaningful use to say, hey, if you're able to bring in, I'll just call a number, $10 million per year, we're going to pay back some of that $10 million into your clinical IT shop or your IT shop, whoever leads it, right? whether it's your CIO, CHIO, whomever, um, so that you can improve training so that you can go buy Dragon or Nuance or whatever it is, right? That's gonna be your voice recognition so that you can do some optimization projects. And I think we were one of those organizations that missed that opportunity in the early days, doing much better at it now. And so whether it's in the end of Meaningful Use for us, the beginning of MIPS, some of the HEDIS programs, it's been a conversation with leadership and we've been lucky that we have leadership that has um, accepted that challenge and said, "Hey, if we go off and bring in half a million dollars or a million dollars on this project, right? Because we're sort of project managing it and being that cheerleader for the clinicians and um, staff. If we bring in a million, a million and a half, give us 10%, right? Let's use that 10% to build back into the system and improve the way we train, improve the tools that we have, um, go off and get." Uh, tap card so that you don't have to type your password in 30 times a day when you're seeing a patient. And so they've been really accommodating with that. I think that all organizations are going to be struggling with budget and finances. And the tr- the trend is to say, hey, IT is an expense or clinical IT is an expense. And one of the conversations I've had with our leadership and our CFO is that at some point in time... You have to stop counting this as an expense that you're trying to drive down the percentage of because nobody tells you when you have a car that gas is an expense that you're trying to drive the cost down of. You need gas to survive. Nobody says when your tires are worn. I just don't buy tires because you know you can have an accident and I think clinical IT is so embedded in healthcare right now that leaders in healthcare organizations have to start treating it not like capex opex and I understand all the conversations about that but this is just the cost of doing business now. It's like saying that the physician is OPEX and we're going to cut down the number of physicians that we have. You really can't. And so if you're an organization that's trying to grow and trying to be an excellent organization and you're giving IT sort of that third cousin or that distant relative status, you're actually setting yourself up yourself up for failure long term. And I think that has to be something that leaders are very very focused on over time.
0: Well, that's why we're lucky when individuals such as yourself take that type of CMO, CMIO role, because when you have the physicians talking about the technology being a non-negotiable in the budget, I I already can hear our cybersecurity brethren uh, cheering in the background because, you know, they've spent years lobbying for cyber yep. to be a non-negotiable expense. Like, Hey, it's always going to be 10% or X, Y, Z. And here's what level of you know risk you can assume. We're at that same point with our EMRs and some of these other technologies. So thank you for that perspective.
1: Exactly. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: And talking to you is always like literally like an academic session. I feel like I've spent 30 minutes at a, at a high-end university, which I love. But our users or our listeners are going to have the same, the same perspective. How do you like people to find you? Is it LinkedIn? Is it Twitter? What's your preferred method for saying this is how you can find Oge okay out there in the, in the real world?
1: Yeah, it's probably a combination. I mean, on Twitter, it's Oge Isimo. That's O-G-E-I-S-I-M-O. And on LinkedIn, it's just my first and my last name. I think I'm the only lozi that exists on LinkedIn. So it's, uh, thank my mom and dad for giving me a unique name.
0: Well, they gave you a great name and uh, that's the thing you have to watch out for on social media though. they When they when they put your name and they're going to find you. Um, I have such a common name. There's like a designer in Canada. So I'm lucky like you Google me and look, some, some girl selling pillows in Canada. So it works out pretty well. So, okay. Is there anything that you want to share with our audience before we end our conversation today?
1: No, I think again, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time. This has been great. I always love to talk about these opportunities. I think that Healthcare, as you know, is evolving and changing rapidly. Sometimes those of us that are trying to push it harder feel it's not changing fast enough. But I think that if we're in healthcare technology, as long as we keep the patient as the number one goal, We will most likely do right by them and understanding that the clinician satisfaction and clinician efficiency can help engage with patient care and ensure that patients get the best care possible. And so I truly believe that technology can do that. And I truly believe that in as much as we focus on millennials because they're that generation that's the native and we think, yeah, they'll use an app, they'll use the phone, they'll use XYZ. Baby boomers are living much longer. And so they're going to be around another 20, 30, possibly 40 years. And we have to find ways to engage with our Medicare and seniors that are on their basis, but also use technology to make it simpler for them. So I think there's a host of things that are coming out that are exciting. And uh, kind of stay tuned. Look forward to some of the changes over the next few years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's like being 65 is now being like a millennial Medicare recipient, since we're living such a long time, which is a great thing to see. Okay, thanks again for being on the show. Look forward to connecting with you again soon.
1: All right. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the SoCal Hymns podcast series. Special thanks to Callister Harmon, our audio and mixing engineer, for helping us produce our podcast series.